As you guys know, the teens were... ...come forward and get right at camp. Hopefully none of them were doing that. But, but it dealt with issues like hypocrisy and being good on the outside but not loving God on the inside and things that, that really matter. They really deal with the heart of the issue. So I'm just hoping that this week will have been a good challenge for our teens moving forward. And we're going to go ahead and dismiss all the children and all the teenagers. We have two separate things going on. Mrs. Hitz is going to take all the kids. Um, just go ahead and follow her out the back door. And then David is going to take all the teens. And we're, they are going to be dis dismissed for this evening service. If you don't mind opening your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. This message I have re not regretted, but uh, been hesitant to preach since the day I wrote down my messages for the year. And I planned all of my messages an entire year in advance. So 
eventually it had to come to this, and I can't put it off any longer, okay? So, but 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. We're going to be dealing with a sensitive topic, and the reason I've dismissed the kids and the teenagers is they don't necessarily need to hear everything that we are going to talk about tonight. But I think in Christianity, sometimes we have gotten into a mindset that there are certain topics we just don't talk about. There are certain topics that we think the Bible doesn't deal with, or we don't take it seriously. And the topic for tonight is one of those such topics. Tonight's topic is going to be dealing with sexual intimacy in marriage. This is part of our, our series going through, the t- going through the topic of marriage. And I think for a long time, churches have been silent on these things. And because of that, um, there, there have been abuses, there have been problems in marriages because we just haven't taught people that the Bible actually speaks about this, that the Bible actually deals with it. And just to relay your, your, your fears, I'm not going through Song of Solomon tonight, okay? So <laughs> we may look at one verse in Song of Solomon, that is it, okay? But our secular culture has molded the way that we think about this, more than even we realize sometimes. And because we didn't have that biblical, scriptural grounding when it comes to the physical relationship within our marriages. But I think when it comes to marriage, sex is a fundamental part of a good marriage. It is, it's an essential part of a good marriage. Marriage isn't all about that, but it is foundational to having a good marriage. And when God instituted marriage, what was it that he actually instituted? His, his first commands that he gave, uh, the very first one he said was be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Well, how do you do that? The physical relationship is involved in fulfilling that command, and that's the very first command we ever received from God, right? The very first one. When uh, Adam talked about, uh, talked about when Eve was brought to him, and he talked about this institution of marriage, he says, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. That idea of cleaving involves this physical cleaving. It literally is to be glued Two, and God delights in husbands and wives being sexual beings. The one verse we are going to look at in Song of Solomon, I'm just going to read to you, is Song of Solomon chapter 5, verse number 1. Now, when you read through Song of Solomon, you don't see God mentioned throughout the entire book. And he is, and he is silent throughout the entire book, except possibly in one place. Most commentators, when they, when they comment on the book of Song of Solomon, they point out this verse as being the one time that God speaks throughout the whole book. Song of Solomon 5 verse 1 says, I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Without going into detail about what those phrases mean, they are physical in nature. They are dealing with the physical relationship between a husband and spouse. But then in the, in the last phrase of this verse, somebody else chimes in, somebody else speaks, and says, eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. Most commentators believe that's God saying this is a good thing and cheering them on in their relationship. We know in Hebrews 13, verse number four, the Bible says marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. The biblical perspective on sex and marriage is that marriage is a good thing, and the sexual bed 
is pure. It is holy. It is undefiled. It is not a dirty topic within marriage for the Christian. And having a good physical relationship with your spouse, we all know, has positive benefits to our relationship. I'm going to give you a couple just to start with here. But honestly, it brings us closer together. Husbands and wives, if they have the type of relationship that they ought to, the physical relationship draws them closer together to each other. Honestly, you think about the act of, of sex, and when you make somebody naked, or when you make yourself naked in front of somebody else, you are putting yourself in a vulnerable position. You're opening yourself up to that position. And honestly, it's one of the greatest expressions of the type of love that God extends to us because we accept one another with all of our flaws, okay? I am not um, some handsome guy, okay? Cary Grant, no, okay? So I am not, I'm not a hunk, you know? But my wife loves me as fat as I am and as flawed as I am. And, and in marriage, that's a beautiful thing because we accept and we love one another with all of our flaws. Our world has destroyed this image of what sex is intended to be. It has turned it into something that is transactional. It is all about what to and what pleases me. In our hookup culture of our day, you can have sex just, just to please yourself and move on to somebody else, right? But marriage in sex is intended to be a covenant between two people. It is the expression of that love that you vowed to one another on your marriage day. And so every time we have the physical relationship, we are renewing our vows that we made on our honeymoon day. So it can bring you closer in your relationship. It has a physical benefit, okay? I don't, I'm not a doctor, but I'm just going to quote what they say, okay? But having a physical relationship with your spouse lowers your blood pressure and stress, so I need this. The one medication I am on is blood pressure medications, okay? But husbands and wives, uh, they say, who kiss daily before leaving the house, which kissing is a form of physical intimacy, right? Okay? Husbands and wives who kiss daily before the house usually live five years longer than those who don't. So husbands, start kissing your wife if you want to live long, okay? They have fewer car accidents. Don't know how. <laughs> they lose nearly 50% less time at work because of illness, and they earn 20 to 30% more money than non-kissers. So you want to get rich? Start kissing your wife, okay? That's the key. So, but it has physical benefits, and these are things secular scientists have pointed out, that the physical relationship between a husband and wife is beneficial to us. It also helps you deal with issues, because honestly, let's face it, how many of us are going to want to sleep together if we're fighting, right? Well, until you get things right, you're not going to. And so it helps you be motivated to work on the relationship, to, to work on making things right with your spouse. Now we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 7. And if you know anything about the Corinthian church, they were in a very corrupt society. And that corruption had made its way into the church. To be honest, American culture is probably just as bad as the Corinthian church was back then. And in many churches, the same things are going on that were happening in the Corinthian churches. If any church was, was like American churches, it would be this church right here. And Paul has to deal with this issue of sexuality within the church because the Christians had compromised with the society that they lived in. So the first thing we're going to look at is the background. But let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse number 1. It says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, 
It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Now the context to this passage actually begins in the previous text. Because the church had two problems related to sexuality. There was one group who gave in to the culture. They were sexually immoral people. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, I believe it is, that Paul had to deal with a man who was sleeping with his stepmother. Okay? A sin, incest, a sin that had not even, he said, been named among the Gentiles. And yet it was, it was being, having to be dealt with within the church. And in chapter number 6, um, and starting in verse number 12, he deals with this group of people who have given in to the spirit of the age, the culture, the sexual culture of their day. And he said, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now notice the next phrase. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord and who raised up, and he continues on, okay? And talks about, know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What, know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. And then he gives a command, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. And there is so much more we could say about this, but that's not the topic for tonight. What know ye not that your bodies are the, is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirits, which are God's. Now in verses 12 and 13, Paul repeated a phrase multiple times. There's this phrase that says, all things are lawful unto me. Most commentators believe that this was a quote. The people who were giving in to sexual sin were saying, all things are lawful, meaning I have liberty to practice however I want to. I have liberty to commit sexual sin because I'm forgiven in Jesus Christ, right? Think of Romans chapter, uh, what is it, eight, six? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, right? But these people thought they had liberty to give in to their sexual desires. All things are lawful to me. But Paul contradicts that and says, all things are not expedient. Just because you have liberty in Christ Jesus doesn't mean it is beneficial. And he says, I will not be brought under the power of any. The body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. So Paul deals with a group who is giving in to sexual sin, giving in to the cultural definition of sexuality in their day. But in chapter number seven, he deals with a different group, a second group. The second group believed because of the sexual immoral culture of our day, it is better to not get married, and if you are married, to never have sex with your wife. That was their conclusion. In fact, most commentators believe verse number one is actually a quotation. 
It says, now concerning the things you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. They believe that this is what these people had written him. Saying, because of these immoral people, we believe it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And in order to understand this phrase, I believe we have to, we have to look at what, what this verse is actually teaching. Um, in, in our text, we even have a little bit of a tip-off that this is a quote from the people who had written him. We've got the little colon right after whereof ye wrote unto me. That little colon says what follows explains what you wrote to me. Okay, So that's kind of a tip-off that this is a quote. Also, Paul contradicts this statement. What's the very next word in verse number two? Go ahead and say it. Nevertheless, okay? That, that's a long English word. That is the translation of the simple word but in Greek, okay? Paul is contradicting the statement he has just made. He is refuting it, just like he did when he said, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. So what is it that these people were actually saying in this phrase? It is good for a man not to touch a woman. I think we make a mistake sometimes when we look at the definition of every single word in a phrase and try to come up with the meaning of a verse based on the meaning of the individual words that are in it. I'm going to give you an example here, okay? Now, in context, when we talk about the sexual act in English culture today, what phrase do we use? Anybody? What's that? Intercourse. Okay, you're getting technical on me. What, in colloquial terminology, what phrase do we use? I heard, I think I heard it. Sleeping together, okay? Well, let me ask you this. Are any, is anybody sleeping at that time? No, nobody is sleeping at that time, right? If you analyze those individual words, you're going to come to the wrong conclusion, right? And we are glad for that because we don't want our kids to understand what we're talking about. So we use phrases like this, sleeping together. But in, in, the, in the text here, when it says to touch a woman, we could analyze it and say, what does touch mean? What does woman mean? And come up with an interpretation for this verse. But that's not how these words work. To touch a woman was a euphemism used in the Bible and used in Greek culture of that day to talk about the sexual act, sexual intercourse. So what this verse is, is trying to say is a good thing, it is a commendable thing, not to have sex with a woman, period, under any circumstances. That's what they are affirming. In fact, we see this in, in the Hebrew um, in Genesis 20, verse number 6. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee, what? Not to touch her. God kept him from going in onto her, from having sex with her, right? We've got other phrases in, in, the, in the Bible, like knowing them. A euphemism for the sexual act. Proverbs 6, verse 29 uses the same thing. So he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. Okay, and this is parallel. Toucheth her is the same thing as going into his neighbor's wife. It is a euphemism for the sexual act. In secular Greek culture, this phrase is used 10 times in Greek, in Greek literature. Nine out of 10 of those times it is clearly referring to the sexual act. So this verse is talking about, is affirming that it is a good thing not to, touch, not to have sex with a woman. That's what these people were saying. And that is what Paul is dealing with. <clears throat> so the statement, I think, was partially true, obviously, 
for single people. We preached from this text dealing with the gift of singleness in the past, right? Does God want single people to be sexually active? Answer? You can say it. No? Okay. I'm going to make you guys talk more because I'm going to feel awkward standing up here talking about this topic. And so you talking will help with that, okay? So, but no, God does not want them to be sexually active. He wants them to be pure. And he talks about that in, the, in these verses here. Um, but also, people who are um, widowed, he talks about them as well because they are now single once again, right? And he deals with that in the same context, the implication of these verses is that married people within this church were choosing not to have sex with their spouses. That's the implication. That's the, that's the, the context to these verses. But we know that that's contrary to the biblical teaching on sex. We've already talked about Hebrews 13, Proverbs 5, verses 18 through 19. Let's flip there real quick. Proverbs chapter 5. <clears throat> Proverbs 5, verse 18 and 19. Really, we could go all the way back to 15, so let's do that, okay? Paragraph begins in verse 15, says, Drink waters out of thine own cistern, and running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad, and rivers of waters in the streets. Let them be only thine, and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed, and... Just in case you don't understand the analogy that's being drawn here, he says, and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times. Be thou ravished always with her love. And then he goes and talks about the strange woman. But, he, but the command here is to drink waters out of thine own cistern, to, to enjoy the water, the running waters, the fountains, the rivers of waters, said, let them be yours and not a stranger's. And then he says, rejoice with the wife of thy youth and let her be as a, a loving doe and a pleasant roe and let her breasts satisfy thee and be thou ravished always with her love and her love alone is the implication here. But what is God's, God's perspective on sex? is that it is a good thing to be rejoiced in, to be enjoyed, to be a blessing to mankind. In fact, in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3, um, the, uh, Paul warned Timothy that in the latter days there would come in false teachers who would depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And what are some of these doctrines of devils that they would teach? They would speak lies and hypocrisy, their conscience would be seared with a hot iron, but here's what they, what they taught. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So the problem that this church was dealing with is they had one group that was giving in to sexual sin, and they had another group that was swearing off of it altogether in order to try to be more focused, more holy, more, more uh, walking with the Lord and able to serve him in many more ways. And Paul is trying to get across this idea that that is contrary to what God is teaching us throughout the verse. Paul is trying to teach the best way to prevent premarital and extramarital sex and issues like that is to get married and have a normal, healthy, stable 
sex life within marriage. So that's verse number one. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's the background. But then he goes into verse number two and he gives his commands. Okay, there are three commands in verses two through five. Um, yeah, three, two of them are related to each other. Okay, so starting in verse number two says, nevertheless, again, that means but, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. So starting with verse number two, Paul states that in order to prevent fornication, people should get married. Okay, fornication, by definition, is any sexual behavior outside of the divine bounds of established in marriage. Contrary to these legalists who are saying you should not get married, Paul affirms the solution to sexual sin is to get married and to have a proper sex life. The answer to the, to the people who are giving in to sex, sexual sin in the church, the answer was not to get rid of sex altogether. The answer was actually get married and have a good sex, sex life within your marriage. Okay? Um, I put in here a section for teens. I'm not going to preach them. I dismissed them. Okay? So, but, but this is an important thing to understand because I think a lot of times our teens struggle with the temptation in this area because they don't understand what God has created sex to be. Sex is an amazing gift from God to be enjoyed by a husband and a wife. But anything outside of that marriage cheapens it. When you have sex outside of marriage, here's what you are communicating, right? You're communicating, first of all, it's all about you, okay? It becomes a selfish act. And even though you think the per that you love the person, you do not love them enough to wait until you can commit to marriage. And this, the, the reason this breaks down is because sex is a God-invented way to say to somebody, I belong to you. I am exclusively and permanently yours. It is, again, a reaffirmation of our marriage vows that we made to our spouse. And so when you commit the act before marriage, you are lying because you are saying that statement but not willing to back it up by a covenant promise of relationship, of marriage. So it is hypocrisy. Because in your actions you say this, but, you don't, but in reality you are not actually doing this. Fornication includes things like harlotry, prostitution, sex with your boyfriend outside of marriage, but also it can include sex with any, any married person or anybody else who isn't your spouse. It can include pornography. The Greek word is literally porneia. And so pornography becomes fornication. It is a sexual sin that is outside the bounds of marriage. And then other sexually moral behaviors would also fall into this category. Basically, if adultery is a very specific word, fornication is a very broad general word that encompasses everything else, including fornication. Okay? But notice that this verse, in verse number two, it implies, or, or it is intended, to say that marriage is to be monogamous. Right? It says, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, to keep yourself from the temptation to commit fornication, what should you do? First command, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. How many wives does it say? One, okay. One, her own husband, his own wife, okay? One husband, one wife. Let, in order to combat this sexual temptation, the answer isn't just to stop having sex and step out of marriage. The answer is, have your husband, 
have your wife, right? And, and enjoy that relationship. Get married. Have the kind of relationship that you should. That means God's intent is for one man and one woman to be married, to have his own wife. Paul is later on going to say that it is better to marry than to burn. If you cannot contain yourself, singleness is not God's will for your life. In fact, uh, looking at these words, um, incontinency, the very last word of verse number five, okay? This, this word literally means the inability to hold yourself in, okay? That's the, the direct tie to this idea of burning rather than, um, rather than pleasing God. So you, you, if, you, if you're burning, you should marry, okay? Verse number two. So the answer is, the solution is get married. Let every man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. But then he goes on and gives a second command in verse number three. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence and likewise also the wife unto the husband, okay? Verse three is really where we're gonna get down to the meat of this message. Husbands and wives are told to, first of all, to render. That word render is present continuous tense in Greek, meaning it is something you continually do. Continually, and literally it means fulfill your duty. That's the context here. Sex is not intended to be something I did on my honeymoon, and that's it. I pity you if that's the case, okay? But it is not some, something where it's supposed to be, we did it twice our entire marriage, and that's it. It is something that is to be continually repeated throughout our marriage. It is a continuous part of our married life. God wants us to enjoy the physical intimacy on a regular basis because it is the proper expression of love. Kind of like our delight and our joy in God, the proper expression of that is praise, right? The proper expression of our love for our husband and our wife is physical intimacy, is the sexual relationship. Notice, though, that this verse begins with the husband, okay? When you think about sex, most of the time, who is it that you think is the most needy one? Anybody? The husbands, right? The husbands are the most needy one, and the wife is the one who could do without it, right? Okay, that's generally our assumptions in our culture. But who is the one who is commanded to render unto his wife? Do benevolence. It is the husband. God puts this first command here, I think because there's, there's an issue that he wants to deal with. Oftentimes, in this culture and in our culture, when it came to sex, everything revolved around the man's sexual pleasure. Everything was about him and satisfying him. And to the wife, it was no big deal. It was something they didn't care about. But this verse is putting her sexual satisfaction first. Starts with her. Husband, render unto your wife due benevolence. When you say, I do, you are promising some things to your spouse in marriage, right? And foundational to that, what's the very first thing you do on the honeymoon? Usually, okay, so is you, you have the sexual relationship to officially commit that relationship. In fact, you can get an annulment before that happens, right? Okay, if I'm not mistaken, you can correct me, but I, thought, I think this is how the law works. Before that happens, you can get an annulment. But this is, this is something you promise to one another. It is understood by the very act of marriage that this is what you are, you are promising to one another. And so he says, let the husband render unto the wife 
do benevolence. The word literally means a good that is owed to somebody. Husbands, you owe your wife something. It isn't all about you. It is about satisfying the need of your spouse. You render unto her due benevolence. Sexual intimacy and fulfillment is a debt that you owe your wife. But it isn't a one-way street. This goes the other way as well. He says, let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. Okay? It is mutual satisfaction. That's going to be a key word here in, throughout these verses. There is mutuality in this entire action. It is supposed to be mutually satisfying. Wives, the Bible teaches that your husband is owed some things in marriage as well because of that, that commitment, that covenant that you made with your spouse. These verses, these verses teach that God is against the misuse of sex in marriage. Okay, and this is, this is behind the scenes maybe a little bit, but marriage is something that is owed both to the husband and to the wife. So among the things that God is against because of these verses is frigidity or shutting your spouse out physically. It's not healthy for your relationship. And long term, it's a violation of the commands that we are going to see in this text right here. <clears throat> now I will say this though, husbands, if your wife is frigid, Maybe you should ask yourself, why is she this way? Because you probably did something stupid, right? Okay, <laughs> it's a response that the relationship is not gonna be what it should be. It's not, gonna, it's not gonna be as healthy as it should be when we're treating our wives like trash. And therefore, the end result is the sexual relationship is not going to be what it should be. Sometimes your spouse may not be intentionally shutting you out either. That's something you need to consider. In marriage, there is a tendency to experience what they call desire discrepancy, okay? What that means is you want something and your wife doesn't want something right now. And you're kind of on opposite schedules for this. That's desire discrepancy. Maybe you desire it a lot and your spouse does not. And, that <clears throat> and that's something that needs to be communicated within marriage. This can lead to problems in marriage largely because spouses are uncomfortable communicating about this topic. It's uncomfortable standing here talking about this topic, right? But we are uncomfortable even talking with the person we know best, our husbands and our wives. But that's not how things are to be. We ought to be communicating about these things. Spouse, uh, this is a quote from uh, Michael Sistisma, a Christian um, counselor dealing with these issues. He says, spouses who make a concerted effort to focus on having sex for the sake of the relationship actually end up with higher desire and higher satisfaction. But this is something that needs to be communicated. We need to render to our spouses due benevolence, not hold it back, not be frigid. Another thing that God is against because of this is withholding it as punishment or manipulation. Sex is not a weapon to be used against your spouse, okay? Using sex as a bargaining chip is a violation of the fact that in this verse it's something due. It's due benevolence to your spouse. Now I think one clarification though needs to be made. And I'm just going to read my notes here because I want to make sure I get this in correctly. If your spouse has treated you like trash or you just had a blow up, he or she should not be expecting sex right then and there. Sex is intended to be the natural expression of true emotional intimacy and love within marriage. But it shouldn't be used as a weapon. It is an expression of love, not an expression of hate or manipulation, right? Does that make sense? 
okay? And it is something that we owe one another, both of us, mutually within the relationship, okay? It's verse number three, verse four. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. I think this verse has often been one of the most misused verses in the Bible to excuse abuse within marriage. I'm not going to go into detail, but oftentimes husbands like to use this verse to say that they have a right to take what they are owed. They have authority over, the wife, over their wife's body. But that is not a consistent understanding what this verse actually teaches. It is only reading half of the verse and not reading the entire verse verse, okay? If Paul stopped at this first phrase, this would be excusing misogyny and abuse of women, but Paul does not stop there. This verse teaches, in essence, mutual consent within marriage. The wife hath not power over her own body, but who has the power? Anybody? The husband. And that word power is authority, okay? And then likewise, also the husband does not have power of his own body, but who has the power? The wife. Mutual consent. So a husband can't take something if he's not in charge of his own body, right? If she says no, she has the authority to say no, right? That's the implication of, of this verse. She has the authority to tell him he can't use his body to take it. On the flip side, he has authority over her body as well. But there is mutual consent within this relationship. The verse is not excusing demanding your rights at the cost of the rights of your spouse. That is not what it is affirming. Paul's whole point in all of this is not about demanding what you are due. Is that how he has couched any of this? Has he said, husbands, take what you are due, and wives, take what you are due? No, that's not what, he, what his intent is behind these verses. Rather, it's flipped on its head. It is about sacrifice, sacrificially giving of yourself to your spouse. That is Paul's intent here. He is saying you should give of your spouse, of yourself to your spouse. It's not about taking, but it is about giving. We ought to give ourselves to our spouse. Sometimes this is going to mean that we don't always feel like it, right? But we love our spouse enough, spouses enough to please them. Sometimes we're tired or we have a headache but our spouse's needs come before our needs on both sides, both directions, because this is mutual. He has dealt with both sides of the equation in every single one of these verses. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4, we use it in a lot of spiritual senses. I'm going to take it and I'm going to apply it to this, this issue within our marriages as well. But Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4 says, let nothing, how much? Nothing, okay? Does that include the topic we are discussing tonight? Yes, okay. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This goes both ways. Sex should be an expression of love, of giving, of meeting my spouse's needs. Ephesians 5, verse 25, husbands love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So our sexual life should never violate the way that God loves us as the church. It is not about selfishness, it is about taking, it's not about demanding my own wants and needs, 
but it is about loving and giving of myself to meet the needs of the other person, not getting my needs met. So we are told to render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The, hus- the wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. And then we are commanded in verse 5, defraud ye not one another. The word defraud literally means to deprive of something. I, it, to deprive of, in this case, the sexual fulfillment within the relationship. And the tense of this verse, the way this is worded in Greek, Paul is literally saying this, stop defrauding, stop depriving each other. Because this group of people were doing it. They were withholding it within their marriage. It was an issue. And he tells them, stop doing it. Okay? So some in the Corinthian church had sworn off of sex even though they were marriage. And Paul frames it in language to say that you are not doing right by your spouse. You are defrauding them. You are, you are depriving them of something that he has just said is due benevolence. It is a good that you owe them, right? Now, I think understanding this, this is dealing with long-term withholding, okay? This is an issue we need to talk about related to this because just telling your husband not tonight is not a violation of these verses. This, these, these people were totally and completely stepping away from it for long periods of time, okay? And Paul answers that issue and the rest of the verse here. He says, um, defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Husbands and wives should have the type of marriage where they can communicate in marriage, that tonight isn't a good night. They should be able to communicate to their, to their spouse and they should be able to plan an alternate solution if they are communicating the way that they should. The problem that these Corinthians were facing is that there was a long-term denial of the sexual relationship within their marriages. So the question is, how long is too long? And the answer to that is, I can't really tell you. I don't have the right to tell you. I don't have the authority to tell you because the Bible doesn't tell me, okay? But... There have been debates among Jews weighing in on this. Jews debated between Hillel and Shammai. You know these two groups, the ones who dealt with the issue of divorce, was debating with divorce with the Pharisees. But um, Hillel believed that too long was more than one week, and Shammai believed that it was more than two weeks, unless you are a traveling salesman. Okay. I don't know. Okay, so <laughs> traveling salesmen are gone for long periods of time. That was their reasoning. But here's the thing. The text doesn't say Only you know when too long actually is. I think we all kind of get an idea. It's been a while, right? (laughs) And we get it into our head. We know when that is. So if you and your spouse are starting to feel distant in your relationship, that may be a tip-off that this is something that you might want to consider as a step in fixing that distance between the two of you. Ask yourself, when was the last time that we had meaningful sexual relations between husband and wife? The reason that we should not go too long without it is according to this verse because it opens us up for temptation. Okay, the last phrase, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Okay, so withholding ourselves from it opens us up to potential temptation. And I think a lot of emphasis has been placed on husbands and temptation 
because there has been a lot of emphasis on these verses to try to manipulate women in marriage. And that is not what these verses say. Notice, who is it that Satan is going to tempt? That Satan tempt not, what's the next word? You. It's not about necessarily worrying about your husband and his temptation. It's not what Paul said here. Although that's a good thing. If you love your husband, you should be concerned about that. But he is worried that you would be tempted. That you is plural, so it includes your husband and you. Okay, Both of you. Husbands aren't the only ones that are tempted sexually if, if they aren't having a physical relationship with their wife. And ultimately, you're not guilty for the sins of your husband. You can do things to help him, do things to help keep him from giving in, but you are not guilty for his choices. Okay? But wives don't often realize that Satan can tempt them in these situations as well. I mean, obvious one is they... They can be tempted physically to connect with another man when they aren't having relations with their husband, okay? That one's the obvious one. But what about emotional connection? How many wives who grow distant from their husbands try to find somebody else that they can share their heart with and they can form intimacy with emotionally? Talk about all their struggles and all their problems. This is usually where things start in the workplace is this emotional connection. And that's temptation, Satan's opening you up to temptation. Wives and husbands can be tempted to permanently refuse it and thus be sinning against God. That would be Satan, a, a temptation of Satan, right? Wives and husbands can be tempted to give in to bitterness towards their spouse and not seek the reconciliation that they need to have a healthy relationship, which then in turn leads to a healthy sexual relationship within their marriage. Wives and husbands can be tempted to just live distant in their relationship. Does God want us to be distant from our husband and our wife? No, he wants us to be close to them. But we can give in to the temptation to give in and just accept this distance because of our incontinency, our inability to hold and to control ourselves. Satan, ultimately, he wants to destroy your marriage, right? He is not the fan of your marriage. He does not want your marriage to succeed because your marriage speaks to God. It says something about God and his character and how he loves us. And if he can destroy your marriage, he can distort that image. He can break that image. And he can destroy what God values in your marriage. And so Paul tells us the third command here is that we are to come together again. When there are times that you can't be physically active in marriage, it can't happen or it's not practical. Those things do happen, right? Okay? It is important to come together again as soon as possible. Do not allow the circumstances of life completely change your sex life. There are times when it ha there has to be a pause to it, but our perspective should not be joy at getting out of it. <laughs> our perspective should be an eagerness to resume what God has given us within marriage, to resume the normal, healthy sex life. Now, the third point we're going to look at is the exceptions that are found in verse number five here. Paul does leave the door open for some exceptions, though there may be times when you choose not to have sex for an extended period of time, you need to remember these things. Remember, this verse is not dealing with delaying it until tomorrow. These verses are dealing with a long-term refusing it altogether. So here are his exceptions to this rule. If you're going to go without for an extended period of time, first of all, it needs to be 
with consent. With consent. Consent means what? What was it? Agreement, right? And in order to agree on something, what do you have to do? Consent, yeah, okay. Communicate. You got to talk about it, right? Okay. You communicate in some way that this is, this is what we're going to do. There has to be mutual communication. And it also means you can't unilaterally make this decision all on your own. Like uh, Luke decides he's going to become a monk tomorrow. And uh, he's going to be chaste and abstinent for the next 50 years. Okay. And Amanda has no say in the matter. Amanda, what do you say? No, okay, so Luke does not have that right. He cannot unilaterally make the decision. It has to be an agreed-upon decision between the husband and wife. The same doctor that I quoted earlier, he said, the uh, he said that uh, communication is the most important key to improving your sex life. It is an expression of the health of your communication skills in sex. In fact, most issues where sex has devolved in your marriage is because you aren't communicating. The two are very strongly related together. And so you do not have the right to unilaterally make this decision, to come home one day and say, honey, I need to focus on myself for a while, and so we are not going to have sex for the next six months. Okay? I picked six months because that would be out of the ordinary long term. Right? Okay? If you're not going to go without sex, it must be by, we've used this word multiple times, mutual consent. You both have to agree. And then he says here, he goes on, he says, for a time, for a time. There is an expiration date on this. It is only for a short period of time. So he puts a limit on withholding sex to a limited amount of time. And the longer you go without it, the more damage you will do to your relationship. Okay? So it is by agreement. It is only for a time. And then he throws in here, for a spiritual purpose. He says, that ye may give yourself to fasting and prayer. Now, I don't think Paul's intending to limit the only reason to spiritual purposes, like saying, okay, we're, we're going to go without it, and, and you have to be fasting and praying to do it. But I do think he is putting in here that for spiritual reasons, that is an acceptable reason to go without the physical relationship for a period of time. Um, remember, he's speaking to the ultra-spiritual legalists here who think that going without sex is better for their spiritual life. That's the problem that he is dealing with. So sometimes denying your bodily appetites is necessary to help us focus on God. That's why we fast. We go without eating so we could focus on God. Not so we can say we're more spiritual, say, look at me, I fasted today. But so we can focus on God. And sexual appetites can be included in that. But there must be an end to fasting at some time. Can you go without eating for more than 30 days? No, probably not. Okay, I use 30 because that's the one they use in the Bible. But I don't know anybody who's fasted for longer than that. But there has to be an end to it. Okay? And that is what Paul is concluding in this verse. The only, the only exceptions are by agreement for a short time and for a spiritual purpose. Now, sex is an important piece, an important piece to a good marriage. And Paul knows that. And he knows that going without it can lead to some serious problems within marriage. I know this has been a different type of message this evening, but I do think it's important to, to ask ourselves, to challenge ourselves in this, er in this area. I'm going to have an invitation. It's not going to be the same as this morning's. 
because this issue is a little bit more sensitive than this morning, okay? But heads bowed, eyes closed. I want you to ask yourself this question. Have I been denying the necessity of sex in my marriage? As the pianist comes, I'd like her to play I Surrender All, but here's the real question. Will you surrender your sex life to God 